Thank you for joining us this morning at Harvest. We have been looking at the Old Testament. Uh, we've been looking at the Old Testament because we, as Christians, we believe that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are God's inspired word. One of the fathers of the church, probably the most influential figure of the church, Augustine, said the, the New Testament in the Old Testament is concealed and the Old Testament in the New Testament is revealed. That is, the new in the old is concealed, it's hidden, and the old in the new is revealed. So as I said, we have been going through the Old Testament, and this morning we'll be looking at 19 verses from Genesis chapter 22. I promise you it won't be that long. Genesis chapter 22, the first 19 verses. We heard in the sermon series a few weeks ago that reasons for doing such a sermon series like this is to look at what Jesus said in, in the New Testament. He tells the religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that witness about me. In another place in the Gospels, Jesus says that the whole Old Testament is about him. So as Christians, we believe that the New Testament and the Old Testament are not broken pieces put together, but they are one book telling one story about one God who saves one people. So today, as we briefly look at the story of Isaac, as you may have guessed in the Old Testament, I hope that you would be encouraged and strengthened in your faith, and I hope that as we go through the sermon today, that you would be able to take these Six practical things. So I'm going to read you the six practical applications that I think you may be able to get from this sermon. One, I hope that you will be able to see the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ in, in scriptures and in history. Second, I hope that you would see scriptures as a unified whole. Third, I pray that you would read and participate in the Old Testament as Christian scriptures. I pray that you would be stirred to have assurance in the promises of God and believe in it. I pray that you would be encouraged to live as God's people, as children of promise and freedom in a pagan world. And most importantly, I pray that you would be transformed by beholding Christ, as Paul says in the New Testament. He says, we Christians with an un unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So that is, those are the, the practical things, and I hope that you'll be able to gather them uh, as I speak. So um, I'll, re I'll read the first 19 verses of Genesis 22, and then we'll get into it. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes up and saw the place from afar. 
And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife. So they went both from both of them together. And Isaac said to, to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar, on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or anything, do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your, only, your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed me. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, where Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray. Open our eyes, God. Open my eyes so that, so that I may see wondrous things of you in your word. I pray that my brothers and sisters here would also see wondrous things from your word. I pray that you teach us what we don't know and that you give us what we don't have and make us who we are not. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Every sermon, every passage in the Bible has a background, and you know this background very well. As part of the series, about three weeks ago, Pastor Kyle preached from Genesis 1 to 3 on creation, fall, redemption. In it, he briefly mentioned what we call the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. God promises that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and hers, and that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will strike his heel. As we all know, as New Testament Christians, this foretelling of Jesus' death on the cross and his victory over sin and death um, is fulfilled. But we have a full book of the Bible, right? We have a full book. 
And the rest of the Bible after Genesis 3.15 is a footnote or a history or an account of what unfolds after this promise. God's people throughout history have always looked for this offspring. It was not Cain or Abel. It was not Seth. It wasn't Noah. Although Noah was very instrumental in redeeming uh, humanity after the flood. You know and you read that sin continues to abound um, and sinners continue to run amok. And, and they, they rebel against God and you see the height of the rebellion at the Tower of Babel. And it's against this backdrop of the Tower, Abraham is graciously chosen. God sets his affection on Abraham and brings him out of a pagan people group. He gives him a grand promise in Genesis 12. God promises Abraham that he will bless him and he will make him a great nation. He will make Abraham's na name great, etc., etc. Abraham, as we know, was childless. He didn't have any children. So God makes him a promise that he will have a son, an offspring, and that his offspring will be as many as the stars in the night sky. But years go by and Abraham remains childless and his wife barren. This promise is again reiterated in Genesis 17. Uh, we looked at it last week when Austin preached. But you remember in Genesis 17, Abraham laughs at the possibility of having a child. S Sarah also follows Abraham, and she laughs later in Genesis 18, when she is told by three visitors that she will have a son. But you also remember the futile ways in which Abraham and Isaac, Abraham and Sarah tried to have a baby. They, they went to Hagar, and you know how that turned out. But years later, miraculously, when Abraham was 100 years old, and when Sarah was, a was 90 years old, the miracle child, Isaac, is born. The name Isaac captures the whole mood of the affair. Laughters of unbelief and sorrow turn into laughters of joy. Isaac simply means he will laugh or rejoice. Isaac's miraculous birth makes sure that the line of the woman in Genesis 3.15 is preserved. Isaac marries Rebekah, who gives birth to Esau and Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel, and from him come 12 tribes of Israel, and thereon you see figures like Moses, David, and the prophets, and all of these big shots in the Old Testament. And as you know, this line continues, and one day, um, the Messiah would be born, and he would crush the head of the serpent and bring us victory. But interestingly, in the first letter to be ever written, first writing to be ever written in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, which was written about 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul says that if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, and you are heirs according to the promise. Later, in the same book, he says, we, like the church, the redeemed humanity, are the children of the promise. And he compares us to Isaac. He says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are the children of promise. There's a lot going on here. How did Isaac the miracle child, foreshadow the church? How did Isaac, the miracle child, foreshadow Christ? After all, we've been looking at how the Old Testament points to the New Testament, and especially to Christ. 
I know you can put all of these things together as I preach. So my objective is very easy. I'm going to try to hit some of the low-hanging fruits uh, in this passage in hope that by the strength of the Holy Spirit that you would be able to see the treasures in this passage and you would be able to know Christ in your heart, soul, and mind. So we get to the passage. We are in Genesis 22. And we're looking at a familiar passage. If you grow up in church, you probably heard this story time and again. And if you are new to the Christian faith, you probably heard it too. And just as, just as we read, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his miracle child as a burnt offering. For us living in the 21st century, we look back at this and say, that is very unthinkable. How can God ask a father to kill his son? But the text tells us that God intends this event as a testing of Abraham's faith. Remember that God is not tempting Abraham. God doesn't tempt anyone with sin. So God is not tempting Abraham to commit a heinous crime. God is also not testing Abraham because he is not sure of Abraham's faith. God knows all things. God knows Abraham's faith. Rather, he is testing Abraham in order to reinforce Abraham's own faith. Faith in what? Faith that God, would, who provided the miracle child, would keep the line preserved, and also that he would bless many nations through Abraham, although it would seem so improbable. The New Testament really gives us insight into this event. Um, as Abraham says goodbye to Sarah and takes Isaac to Mount Moriah, he fully believes that God would raise him from the dead. The author of Hebrew comments, on Abraham's faith in this way. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, it is through Isaac your offspring will be named. Abraham considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac from the dead. So Abraham and Isaac leave immediately because Abraham knows that even if Isaac dies, God will raise him up. If not, God would provide a ram. And you see, you see that in the most obvious question that Isaac asked, right? And Isaac asks his father as they go up the mountain, we have everything we need for a burnt offering, except the lamb. Where is it? And Abraham's answer is so simple. And he knew that God, he knew that God would bring Isaac back from the dead or that he would provide him a lamb, as we see in the text. Abraham was so open to obeying God, even in the most radical commandment imaginable. And I think this is because Abraham has known over the years of walking with the Lord that he is to be trusted. This is not a blind faith in an unknown God. Abraham knew this God, walked with, it, walked with this God, has tasted his God, the goodness of his God. So he trusts him. We can move on, but I want you to, to notice two things here. And these obvious things, right? The sacrifice is supposed to be a burnt offering. The Israelites reading this centuries later would have been able to put two and two together and identified this with the many sacrifices prescribed in the Levitical law. The burnt offering in Hebrew 
simply means to go up in smoke. So it's an it's a ascension offering. Leviticus says that the smoke from the sacrifice would ascend to God as a soothing aroma to him. God institutes the sacrifice to show the heinousness of human sin. Our sins are so wicked, they cannot stand in front of an infinitely holy God. This burnt offering, when the animal would be burnt up, would be fully consumed, and it showed imperfectly that the wrath of God against sin and sinners is not a light thing. Now, we don't know why the sacrifice was demanded from, from Abraham, but we know that Abraham, just like us, was a sinner. There are accounts of Abraham's repeated failures in the scriptures. But this, the text doesn't specify the, the very reason uh, why exactly the burnt offering was requested. So we can only speculate. But speculation is good sometimes. Two, when Abraham gets to the place where God has instructed him to offer the sacrifice and lays Isaac on the altar, there is no sign of resistance from, from Isaac. Isaac was not a child here. This is not child abuse happening. The biblical historians think that Isaac was probably 14 to 17 years old, maybe even older. So this is a strong teen who was strong enough to carry the wood uh, for, the, for the altar. This means that Abraham was also 114, 120 years old at this time. So a strong teenager could easily overpower an old man. But that doesn't happen. So we conclude that Isaac gets on the wood willingly in total submission to his father's instruction. But we know, we know how the story ends, right? We know that when Abraham draws his knife to slaughter Isaac, he's stopped by an angel. Abraham is told, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham looks up in relief, as any father would. But he sees a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham's faith is strengthened, and he's offer, he offers up the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son Isaac. And the story ends in a blessing, right? By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have, set, you have done this and have not withheld your son. I will bless you, etc., etc. The miracle child is preserved, and the blessing is reconfirmed. The story ends on a high note. No one is harmed. Everyone goes home safe. Isaac's future is guaranteed. And God shows through this example that he can be trusted with our needs, even before we recognize them. But is that all there is in these scriptures? We have been saying from, from the beginning that Jesus is present in the Old Testament. And one of the ways to look at Jesus in the Old Testament is to compare him with the major characters in the Old Testament, the, the heroes of the Old Testament. So you see what Jesus magnified, what character of them Jesus magnified, and what character of them Jesus was totally opposed to. Right? So you compare by similarities and dissimilarities. We know when we compare Isaac and Jesus that both of them are miracle children. They were, they're, they're born to parents who were not expecting a child. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was born to a virgin. 
Both are described in the Bible as the one and only son. And both willingly lay themselves down as a sacrifice. And we, again, saw that there was no resistance on Isaac or from Jesus. But there is one big dissimilarity, big difference here. Just like his father Abraham, Isaac lied about his wife. He lied to the king that his wife was actually his sister. We've seen this a couple of chapters ago. He lies because he was scared of dying. But in contrast, Jesus willingly dies for his bride. He came so that he would die for his bride. But we also see an obvious progression in the Old Testament in terms of God's provision for sacrifice for sin. Here in these chapters, in these verses, we see God providing one lamb for one person. Abraham offers up one ram in the place of Isaac. Later, later on, a couple of uh, books later, when Israelites escaped from Egypt, God provided one lamb for one household. You remember the story of the first Passover. Every family in the covenant community had to offer up a lamb to God. Then in Leviticus, we see God providing one sacrifice for the whole nation of Israel. And on the Day of the Atonement, a single animal atoned for the sins of one nation. So all of these lambs in the Old Testament were preparing us for the coming of Christ. There were signs pointing to Christ and the salvation that he would provide. That is why John the Baptist can say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. We rejoice in things like that. When, when, we, when we see Jesus proclaimed by an Old Testament prophet like John the Baptizer. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. But there is more here in these chapters. So the comparison is good, but there is more. If you notice in in that chapter, in verse 1 and in verse 11, Abraham is having this whole conversation with God. But in verse 22, it says, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. If you, if you compare verse 1 and verse 11 side by side, you see a lot of similarities in how the sentences are structured. These are just clues that point to a greater reality. You see the angel of the Lord figure throughout the Old Testament. You see him in Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. He's, he's talking to Hagar. In Genesis 18, you see him visiting Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 19, he is the commander of the Lord's army who demolishes Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see him wrestling with with Jacob in Genesis 48. You see him uh, talking to Moses at the, the burning bush, Exodus 3. You see him leading out Israelites from the Egypt in Exodus 23. You see him again in Joshua as he leads the fight. You see him in Judges when he visits Gideon and strengthens him against his battle against the Midianites. You also see him visiting Samson and Manoah and his wife. Um, right before Samson was born. So all of these sightings in the Old Testament are telling something, but they are also showing us something very unique about 
the angel of the Lord. There are similarities between the angel of the Lord and God. The angel of the Lord figure often speaks for God, as an angel would do, but he also speaks as God. He fights for God, but he also fights as God. He forgives sin, and he receives worship, doing things that only God can do. There is a fundamental union between this angel of the Lord and God, but you also see that they are two distinct people or beings. From the very beginning, the church has taught that this angel of the Lord is the second Yahweh figure in the Old Testament. Some of us call it Christophanes or Theophanes. We think that Jesus, before his incarnation, visited his people in the Old Testament, showed up, helped. But some argue that even the Jews, before Jesus' birth, knew what the angel was. There's debates and discussions among Jewish scholars, um, people debating if this is actually a second Yahweh. And if you read the Psalms, coronation Psalms, for example, you see that there is a, there's one Lord talking to another Lord, right? All of these things. Um, and it's, it's very fascinating. It's a fascinating study. But we also know that Israelites at the time believed that God was one as it was written in their, sh in their Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. That's what Deuteronomy 6, 4 says. So we can conclude that the Israelites were monotheistic, that they believed there was one God, but they were not Unitarian. They didn't believe that God's unity was made up of just one person. This is a controversial statement. In some circles, it shouldn't be to us Christians, because we know from the New Testament that God is triune. But they were shut to seeing Christ when he incarnated himself in the New Testament because they didn't really want to deal with God. There are documentations of scholars discussing all sorts of stuff, and I can't get into all these things for the sake of time. So I'll let you, um, let you Google it. Maybe, uh, but, but there's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. But in short, if I can summarize what I just said, I would say this. Jesus did not appear in the New Testament out of nowhere. Ancient Jews were very familiar with God's physical presence in such a way that seeing Jesus would not have been a surprise. They knew him from their history. That's why the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle John can say, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Jesus' ministry during his incarnation was not to re reveal himself primarily. His divine mission was to reveal the Father. That's why he repeatedly says that he has manifested or made known the Father's name to his disciples. And he says things like, I came to reveal the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you love the Father, you will love me because my Father and I one. So in other words, revealing of the Father was in a, in, in a sense greater revelation than the revealing of the Son. Because the Israelites were so familiar with the angel of the Lord's sightings and God's physical presence that it should not have been a surprise that he became human. But they rejected him anyway. That's why it is that bad. <laughs>
Why does it matter at the end of the day? I think it matters because Jesus is the main character in the Bible. Yes, there are many prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. We all know that. There's about 115 prophecies, and some say more. There are historic events in the Old Testament that would point forward to, to the work that Jesus would do. The sacrifice of Isaac, for example, is a clear picture. And the freedom from Egypt is another clear picture. There are religious festivals that foretold Jesus' coming, the Passover, the Festival of Booths, the temple itself proclaimed Jesus. And there are characters who proclaim Jesus. Moses was a good mediator. David was a great king. And Jesus would be the mediator and the king. But he's also seen throughout the Bible. He's the God who walks with Adam in the garden. He's the God who comes down to see what mankind was doing at the Tower of Babel. He's the God who walks between the animals when he makes a covenant with Abraham. He's the commander of the Lord's army who fights for Israel time and again. And he's the fourth person in the, in the fire with Daniel. And he's the one who would be later born in a manger in Bethlehem. Why do I labor this point so much? <laughs> After all, this is not a sermon about Isaac. I'm glad I asked. There are three things, three reasons why I ask this question and why I'm laboring this point so much. One, I don't think Abraham is the hero of the story that we just read. And I don't believe that Isaac is the hero of the story either. Yes, we can look at the strength of Abraham's faith and be awed by it, and we can even imitate it. We can look at the obedience of Isaac and his submission to his father and imitate that. All of these things are biblical. But the central hero of this narrative and every narrative in the Bible is God. In fact, I believe that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the hero of the whole storyline from Genesis to Revelation. That's one. Two, it's important to read the Bible as Christians who have the full revelation of God. God's, the Bible is God's organic revelation, which meant it started small and it grew, just like a baby grows in the womb and becomes a baby that is born. So earlier revelations are smaller in comparison to later revelations. So we read it, we read our Old Testaments like people who have the full light of God's revelation. And one of my professors says this to, to pastors often and preachers, but I think it's also very helpful for every Christian. He says, whenever you are in that text in the Bible, wherever you are, you have to throw one line to Genesis and another line to Revelation. And you pull both lines together. When you do that, then you see Christ more clearly. And by beholding him, beholding him, you can see the whole canon as it was intended. Three, this is important because genuine transformation and growth in the Christian life is the result of beholding Christ. One of my favorite pastors puts it this way. He says, a lot of Christians fight graduate level sins with grammar school knowledge of God. I'll re read again. A lot of Christians fight graduate level sins with grammar school knowledge of God. And that's why they fail. That's why they don't grow. 
In other words, you can't fight your addiction to pornography or the way you treat people, your habitual besetting sin, just by trying to do better or learning new techniques. You have to look at Christ, and by beholding Christ, you would be transformed. Because seeing and savoring Christ is the ultimate solution to the issue of our sin. When we behold Christ as he is revealed in Scripture, sin will lose its power. I'm not talking about knowing God just intellectually. The devil knows God, and it doesn't make a difference to him. I'm talking about knowing God in your heart, soul, and mind. Knowing God for who he is, infinitely beautiful, valuable, and satisfying, knowing him that way is what we are made for. When, when we see God this way, when we see Jesus this way, with the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the, is the, is the being that turns the light on, then transformation takes place, and we change from one degree of glory to another. And seeing him this way is what loosens the grip of sin. It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We're in Genesis 22 still. So I, want to, I pointed our eyes to the angel of the Lord. Now I want to finish up by pointing something else that the angel of the Lord does. Now the angel of the Lord intervenes and stops the slaughter. Abraham spots a ram that is caught in the thicket. And Abraham then offers up the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son. So overwhelmed by God's grace and faithfulness, we see Abraham giving the name, uh, uh, giving the mountain a name. He calls it Jehovah Jireh, which is often translated as the Lord will provide. Having taken Hebrew for one week, um, I, can t I, can t I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you that the word for provide comes from a word that is pronounced to the effect of ra'ah, which means to see. So some later Jewish and Christian scholars and translations would call the land of Moriah the land of seeing, or the mountain of vision. The Latin word for provide also comes from two words. It comes from pro and vide, which means to foresee and to supply what is needed. You remember early on in the chapter, Abraham saying to Isaac, God will see for himself the lamb. But it's not just seeing, right? Because God is all-knowing. And he sees everything already. It is God's purposeful seeing to the things that concern the people of God. It is God's purposeful seeing. That's why, God, uh, that's why John Piper, when he um, defines God's providence, he says God's providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. It's not just seeing. It is seeing to. So you see the word play there. But there's also more. Later on in the Bible, on this very mountain, we see that Solomon would build the temple. Burnt offerings would be offered up on this same mountain year after year as sweet aroma to the Lord. And God would see it to meet with his people and commune with them on this mountain. And centuries later, on the very same mountain, the Lord Jesus Christ would be sacrificed as a burnt offering. And that is where God would finally and fully see to it that his people would be provided for their most profound need.
In other words, what's happening here is profound. Jesus, as the angel of the Lord, is seeing to it that the ram is provided as a substitute for Isaac so he could be free. It's beautiful. But the reason the angel of the Lord could tell Abraham to put away his knife was because in the fullness of time, the angel of the Lord would end up taking on flesh. He would offer himself up on the same mountain as a sacrifice for sin. So if you see what is going on here, you see not only the graciousness of God in stopping Isaac from, from being burnt up, but you also see substitution. You also see propitiation, not just for Isaac, but also for his, for his offspring. That's why Paul can say in the New Testament that we as a church are like Isaac. We are the children of promise. So Jesus provides himself as a substitute, not just for Isaac on Mount Moriah, but also on Mount Golgotha. That, I think, is the reason for our worship of Jesus. Jesus has a bride, and he came for his bride, and he died for his bride. That's why Paul would say, husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He took her, he paid for her, and he cleansed her, and he made her his own. That is the kind of love that all of us need to know, especially living in a pagan culture. If you don't know God's love like this, you're going to grow weary. But if you know God's love like this, it'll be a steel in your spine as you face things that the world throws at you. We as a church, as, as harvest, we should know ourselves to be so personally chosen and so personally died for and so personally made alive and loved. That's why I like this beautiful hymn. It's an old hymn. It says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. It's not Isaac, it's us. When we know Jesus' love in this way, we can say with Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, give us all things? That is a promise to behold as we live our Christian lives. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. And thank you that it is rich beyond comprehension sometimes. It's rich beyond proclamation. I cannot do justice to it. But you, in your grace, you use all things for the good of your people. I pray that the truths spoken in the last hour or so would grow and take fruit in the hearts of your people. I pray that they would know themselves as loved by you. 
an infinite love that would never change. Thank you again for this time, and I pray these things in your name.